You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. It is February 24th, 2022. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And this is um, on the I Love You Keep Going uh, class from Metagroup. Um, <clears throat> we've been, we talked uh, quite a bit about the progress of insight over the last few weeks. Um, but I thought that tonight we would shift gears and begin to talk about uh, what I really think of as the preliminary practices, which is to uh, take a look at your attachment conditioning uh, and make sure that you're in a good place with that and that you're able to put in place a social network that supports your exploration. One of the things about pursuing a deep meditation path is that you need to have support in order to be able to do it. You need to have time, energy, and resources to do it. And uh, putting in place a supportive social network is one of the things that really uh, helps that, really supports that, and makes it possible. Um, one of the things about meditation practice, even though it is becoming quite mainstream, at least through the mindfulness uh, part of it, is that a lot of the people that come to meditation practice in our Western culture, uh, which did, did not have a strong uh, Buddhist or meditative tradition uh, built into it, um, is that they come to it because the conventional uh, sources of relief from the suffering that they're experiencing uh, have not uh, provided that relief. So uh, particularly in, in the more Buddhist end of the meditation world, people are coming because uh, they want relief from suffering uh, and that they're not finding it in, in the more traditional paths in Western culture. Um, if you're coming because you have suffering, uh, it's not a bad, uh, uh, idea. Uh, we do talk about the Four Noble Truths, the first which is the uh, uh, often translated as life is suffering. <laughs> I'm not sure that's the best translation. That um, we do have, uh, we live in a human body, in a human life, and there are certain conditions of that human life and to not be willing to accept those conditions or to want them to be different in some way is the source of suffering. Um, you know, the second one is that there is a way out of that suffering. Um, is that the second one? I'm suddenly thinking it isn't. Um, But I think that for most of us who come to practice in the West, it's um, we're householders. And so we have a lot of interactions with the conventional nature of life. Uh, as a householder, we, we have to keep a, keep a place to live. We have to keep community. We have to keep some source of uh, support for the, the um, places that we live, the food that we eat, the medicine that we consume, the clothes. And so that, that provides uh, uh, us interacting in, in uh, uh, society in some way. Uh, 
Um, and there we have the experience of our conditioning affecting the way that we were, we're able to engage. Um, in Buddhism, we talk about conditioning quite a bit. Um, and I quite like the attachment formulation around understanding conditioning, that these experiences that we have uh, in infancy and in, as we're children, as we develop into adolescence and youth and into our adult lives, um, affects the view we have of it. And we talk a lot about view or the way that we experience or see the world. Um, one thing to talk about then maybe is the creation of conceptual reality from uh, ultimate reality. Uh, we take in the sensing data um, depending on our capacity to sense. So uh, touching, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling, and mind. And then we compare that to our database of our perceptual database. And if there's entries in the database that are close enough to the uh, sensing experience in the present moment, we assign the meaning of those uh, previously stored conditioned experiences. And then the undifferentiated, unfixated uh, present moment experience becomes conceptualized, comes, becomes fixated or solid. And uh, we can easily think that the way that we create that experience is actually what's there without understanding that we really do create it based on our conditioning and that we can create it in almost any way, that there isn't a true or authentic way that is unconditioned in that sense. So then what we need to do really is to examine whether the creation of our conceptual reality is accurate or not, and move increasingly into the experience of the present moment and into an accurate representation of the, what's happening in the present moment. I like the quantum mechanics angle. In each moment, what opens in front of you is all of the possibilities that you could choose from. Um, but as soon as you choose one, all of the possibilities, except for the one that you chose, fall away, and you just have that uh, experience. And then from that experience opens in the next moment, all of the possibilities that you could have uh, based from that position of the, the previous choice. And then as soon as you choose one of those, all of the choices, except for the one you chose, falls away. And then in the next moment, what opens are the possibilities, the choices that are tied to that uh, previous choice. And you have this long line of previous choices which reflect the trajectory of where you end up. One of the things that happens with conditioning is that it creates these views of ourselves. It creates these views or our expectations of what can happen or what's available to us. Um, and so in that moment when all of the choices open in front of us and we have the full range of possibility there, if our views are restricted, then we only see a range of what's available, not the whole picture. And uh, these views can get quite fixated uh, and narrow. And so over and over again, we only see this small selection of the possibilities that are in front of us. And then each time we choose from this limited set, we reinforce the idea that this is all that is possible for us.
we create these working models of self and we create these working models of the world and we do this early early um, by early i mean um, right away right from the beginning of birth um, maybe even in, in in utero this process is happening when we are born of course we don't have the brain capacity really to identify anyone in particular uh, the only exception to that is the the birth mother uh, there's a slight bias toward the sound of the voice of the birth mother at, at birth. Uh, but other than that, nobody is preferenced. And then as the brain begins to develop in the first few months, first, for say, five to eight months of life, and, uh, and we have uh, the capacity to begin to have preference, uh, we begin to develop a hierarchy of, of uh, attachment figures. At some point along the way, we pick in that early few months of life uh, who our primary attachment figure is going to be or who's at the top of the list. And then we begin to model uh, our selves in their reflection. So uh, you're an infant, you're completely dependent on somebody to come and take care of you. And the way that they come and take care of you informs how you create the working model of yourself and also the working model of the world or what you can expect from the world uh, you present yourself in a completely uh, uh, uninhibited authentic manner uh, hopefully you have a sensitive enough caregiver who attunes to you empathetically connects you attempts to understand accurately what it is that you're expressing and then they mirror that back to you and it's in that reflection, in that mirroring of the ideal, uh, of the uh, caregiver that you have, that we create and assemble this working model of ourselves, who we are, we, we take in through the reflection of someone else. Now, we don't actually have any memory of, of this process happening, because that part of the brain that actually is able to hold autobiographical memory hasn't formed yet. So this is really procedural or perceptual, this database that we have. If they come good enough, then we develop a working model of the world as a world that will provide for us. And if they don't come good enough, then we develop a working model of a world that represents the way in which they come to us. But what can happen is that uh, because all of these conditions are in place before autobiographical autobiographical memory comes in line before we have the, the capacity to consciously reflect on that is we can accept in a deep way that the working model that we develop of ourselves and the working model we develop of the world is an accurate reflection of how it is, uh, which then allows us to continue to move through the world with the conviction that these are the conditions. which is this filtering process of what actually opens, what are the possibilities in each of the moments. So you could say in some sense that practice is really inviting you to open up to the full range of possibilities that are available to you in the moment and not just the ones that are conditioned in the early experiences of uh, the interaction with the caregiver or that reflection that we see in the face 
of our caregivers. They reflect back to us their experience of being with us. So how do you come up, how do you begin to do that? Well, we begin uh, really by developing uh, sensory clarity into how we perceive things or what we choose to uh, build the working model of self and world out of. Uh, in the West, this is, um, I say this quite a bit, but Aristotle uh, posited that we take in a visual representation of the world and we create a, a fairly accurate working model of what we take in, which is a reflection of the world, so an accurate reflection of the world. And then we operate from the basis of that uh, largely correct uh, model. This is the, very different in terms of the Buddhist conception, which is we take in the sensing data, we make the sensing data in, into something based on our conditioning. And then once we've created that model based on our conditioning, we project that outward and we inhabit the world that is completely conditioned uh, and not uh, from this accurate working model internally. So in, in the meditation practice in the beginning, to uh, begin to examine these things, we need to have sensory clarity so that we can monitor what it is that we're taking in. We don't do a neutral survey of what's in front of us. We actually just sort of cherry pick things that we have identified along the way as having meaning to us. Is that making sense? Um, and then, from that collection of high value targets or preferences, we assemble uh, uh, the conscious experience of uh, the present moment that we're inhabiting. If you don't really examine this, uh, it's easy enough to fall into this belief that you're actually creating a, an accurate working model of what's there. But when you begin to examine it, you can see how actual actually pliable that is and how easy it is to create a version of, uh, of your self-experience and a version of the world that is very different than what's actually there. Um, usually in, in the way that we think about practices, we start uh, with uh, the heart practices. We start with the intentional uh, capacity for positivity so that we don't, uh, if we encounter these harsh working models of both ourselves and, and the world, we have a, a refuge that we can come into uh, where uh, we can abide in this positivity so that when we experience um, the, the difficulties in these working models that we've developed, we do it from this place of positivity so it isn't unbearable or difficult in that sense. We can hold the positive view and see from that place how these conditioned responses, how these working models were developed, and we can infuse into them the, this capacity for positivity so that when these uh, working models are evoked, um, we have this possibility of a, a positive refuge in which to examine them. Um, First, we develop concentration uh, uh, 
so that if you just look at the way we typically present the preliminary practices uh, or the attachment work, we start with a simple breath counting to develop concentration. One of the things about meditation uh, is that it does require a base level of concentration in order to do the techniques well enough to get the insight that we want you to have out of doing the techniques. And that if you don't have enough concentration and you attempt to do the technique, it either doesn't produce much of, much of a resu result because you're so scattered and caught up in thinking, or it produces a kind of frustration or anger that you're not getting out of it what's been promised to you um, by uh, the people who describe this as a useful uh, activity or path. So then the idea is to develop a base level of concentration or access concentration. Um, some people, uh, in uh, particularly in the Theravada side of uh, meditation practice, uh, are advocating for high concentration states or jhana. And um, I think that uh, high concentration states can be useful. <clears throat> but you will have some pushback against that from uh, liberation only uh, communities uh, because it doesn't lead directly to the, uh, the to liberation um, why then do we consider it to have utility in the in the way that we practice um, because we think that a direct path to liberation is not actually going to be enough to uh, alleviate these uh, uh, attachment conditionings uh, so that uh, the householder life works better. I think the monastic life also uh, uh, could be examined in this way, but we don't tend to work uh, in the monastic community, and it's very hierarchical and uh, patriarchal uh, and uh, um, and uh, there's an emphasis on detachment from personal relationships in that community, or at least the communities I'm aware of. And that's a different environment uh, from the householder community, where we do need to have these uh, collaborative relationships in order to, to make life in the way that we live it uh, work better. Um, uh, an intentional, high concentration, positive state can really uh, uh, operate as a, a safety net uh, for a deep dive into the insight side or the Vipassana side. And that this back and forth going in, if it's too intense, pulling out into the positive state, chilling out, coming back into balance, and then shooting back into the Vipassana side seems to be a very effective way to work with this material. Your own conditioning is the material. Um, so, but in order to, to practice any of the heart practices as a, a jhana practice or a high concentration practice, you have that need that base level and, and the breath counting seems the easiest way to go. So starting with the breath counting, going into uh, concentration-oriented metta practice, which is also focused around understanding views. 
this is very useful uh, when you get past the preliminary practices and want to pursue uh, enlightenment because it really is understanding the enlightened view, being able to generate it and sustain it uh, that leads to liberation. And if you didn't have the, 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 the sensitive enough care from your caregivers so that you have a real dexterity in understanding views or mind states, uh, then you have to do that training anyway. And uh, in uh, an intentionally positive practice, uh, generating an understanding of the views is, is a really useful thing to do. So how do you typically understand a view or learn it? You, you learn it because your uh, caregivers, people that were important to you, ask you questions about your experience and ask you to share it to them. And so you needed both to understand what it was that you were experiencing uh, and you need it also to be able to translate it into a way of communicating it to someone else. This is what really amplifies the clarity of that. So what's going on with you? I can't understand what you're uh, feeling. How did you arrive at that decision? Um, all of those things require this inquiry. You seem sad. Are you sad? You seem happy. Are you happy? You seem angry. Are you angry? How do you know these things? You understand uh, that there's views or mind states, and you track them. You're able to tell them apart. Uh, and then the idea is, of course, to develop agency and causing a preferred mind state over an afflictive one. And being able to do that on the fly uh, in life as it unfolds. Then we move into this uh, investigation of um, What's actually happening? How are you making the, the experience of the present moment into something uh, relatable? So we have the capacity to sense the object can be sensed if there's contact between them, a consciousness of the sensing experience arises, which awareness knows. It's evaluated for processing speed, and then the consciousness of that sensing experience is compared to the perceptual database and if there's an entry that's close enough into the database the meaning that history of memories are attached to the present moment and that undifferentiated fixed unfixated sensing experience is converted into conceptual reality which if you're not in the habit of constantly questioning, you may accept as an accurate representation where it may not be. Um, but then also understand that it's your personal uh, version of the thing based on your uh, conditioning. It's not a universal uh, understanding. It's not an accurate model that everyone is experiencing. It's actually just what you're experiencing based on meanings that you've assigned to it, not even based on a complete picture, but just based on the cherry picking that you did that's associated with your preferences for things. So it's safe to assume that everybody else is having a different experience than you are, even though they may be sort of categorically similar. And so we move out of this uh, conviction that we know what's going on because we made conceptual reality that way to a questioning position of this is what I'm experiencing. This is the meaning I'm making out of it. What are you doing? What does it mean to you? 
and in this way open up the dialogue for uh, intimate uh, exchanges of each other's experiences so that we really get a sense of knowing uh, the other person and really get the sense of being known by someone else. That's that, that place where so much of the meaning of, the, uh, uh, of being alive comes from. And then as we examine our conditioning and what gets in the way of that happening, um, we may find that actually we're not able to express ourselves authentically, that we prefer for some reason these uh, uh, distorted perceptions of what's happening. There's a, a sense of safety that comes from being hidden or being unknown. And that has to do with the working model of the world of being hostile or dangerous or um, the internal working model of ourselves which is that who we are isn't enough and that really comes from that reflection on that early crucible of infant and caregiver when we present ourselves authentically they take it in and then they reflect back to us the value of those completely spontaneous and authentic expressions is it too much not because you are too much but because it's too much for the caregiver is it not interesting not because it isn't interesting to you but because the caregiver doesn't find it interesting we don't have the capacity really to differentiate in that very early period of uh, conditioning between uh, ourselves and our preferences and the mirror that's reflecting back to us what's happening. So hopefully you had an, an uh, ideal, uh, an ideal, I like to say, caregiver, um, who uh, enough of the time reflected back to you your own value and, and uh, uh, responded to your authentic expressions with a sense of joy or delight and encouraged you to be that uh, unique and rare and beautiful uh, person, uh, being that you were, and that that's how you built up your working model. But if that didn't happen, then what we would want to do is to begin the journey now of creating that more accurate reflection. What are your qualities? What are these, these unique qualities that you have? Um, your perspectives, all of that. And do you notice how those qualities come together and form this unique perspective that's just yours? And can then you identify people who find that perspective delightful, joyful, valuable, and surround yourself with people who respond to you in that way? First, you have to know how you hold yourself and how you hold the world uh, and then you need to begin to find people around you uh, that reflect back these qualities that you have that are uh, uniquely yours. In order for them to do that, of course, you have to be willing to express them so that they actually have the opportunity of doing that. So that's this early part of the attachment work. Now, one of the things that, that's great about having an attachment map for this is that you have these patterns uh, these condition patterns that are fairly easy to recognize. You don't have to invent the wheel 
over and over again in creating this. You can look at these patterns and see how they match. Uh, and then understand that each of these patterns comes with a skill set, some of it which is usable and some of it which you need to develop uh, to augment what you already have. And then in creating that uh, dynamic set of skills, move out of uh, insecure, disorganized attachment into the sense of security. So in infants, we say uh, you have secure attachment, which means that your expectation of yourself is that you're capable of getting your needs met and that the world is filled with people who will meet your needs. That's a sense of security. So you think that you can take care of yourself and you think that there'll be people around you that will be happy to share in the experience of life with you, happy to take care of you. Um, secure infants, secure adults. Uh, we have anxious avoidant children and the experience of an anxious avoidant ch child is that nobody comes to take care of them uh, consistently in a way that's really useful to them. Uh, and so they remain in this place of auto-regulating. When they grow up, they become dismissing adults and they don't value attachment because they didn't have the experience of its usefulness. They abandon collaborative relationships in favor of transactional relationships. Um, they, uh, they shut down their attachment system in favor of their exploration system and they tend to be oriented in to uh, discovering um, social position, um, uh, remuneration of some kind, power of some kind, so that they have resources to be able to transact the care that they want. They don't believe that there's a way to collaborate with care. They really do see the world as very transactional. They're not emotional because the emotional experience in childhood of being rejected or neglected over and over and over again is so painful that the only way that they have to manage it is by suppressing awareness of their emotions. And in doing that, they also suppress awareness of empathy because they have uh, no capacity for empathy. They don't really have a way of gathering information about the experience of other people. It's never been a dialogue. They've never had anyone ask them about their mind states, ask them about their views, uh, and ask them to express that. So they don't have the facility for that either. Preoccupied adults start off as ambivalent children, and that comes from an inconsistent care. Sometimes the caregiver shows up in a good way, sometimes they don't show up, sometimes they show up in a bad way. So that the child uh, doesn't settle into a sense of safety or security. They settle into a sense of preoccupation with how the caregiver is going to show up. Often kids like that are role reversed so that the parent takes on the child role and the, the child has to take on the adult functioning role. About six years of age, it's possible for children to do that. They develop enough cognitive ability to act as if they were in charge of things. So dismissing people at the core think of themselves as incapable of having collaborative relationships or finding people that will take care of them 
that isn't transactional. But because that's so painful, they tend to inflate themselves up. So their view of themselves is this very special person, very capable person. But the view of the rest of us is that we're not capable and we're not special. So they don't have to regard us in that way. They can feel free to transact the relationship. Preoccupied people think of themselves as insufficient or incapable, as helpless, because they never are able to settle into a sense of security because they can't predict uh, how the caregiver is going to respond to them. But they think of other people as capable, and that comes from sometimes the caregiver are doing a good enough job uh, and sometimes not. So they, they create this idea that they could do it if they wanted to. They have the capacity to do it. It's just that sometimes I can't get them to do it. So that there must be a problem with me or they would just do it all of the time. And then disorganized people, um, usually it's the caregiver that's the source of distress for the child. They become frightened of the caregiver or the caregiver is so frightened of the child that there's no capacity for emotional regulation between infant and caregiver that creates a, a sense of um, inadequacy or uh, um, badness in the, in the child. And then they also think of the, the world of other people as dangerous or malevolent. So th this is a view, of course, these are views so it's useful to be able to understand what the views are. What views do you hold? How do you see yourself? How do you see the world? Um, and then to understand that the early conditioning is the source of these views and that they are largely uh, inaccurate representations of yourself and also of the world. And that you can shift them into views that are more in line with the secure view, which is that I'm good enough, I can get my needs met, and the world will meet my needs. If you don't have that view, how different would it be if that was your expectation? If you walked into a room full of 200 people that you didn't know, and you looked around, and you saw some people were, who were interesting to you, and you had the sense that I can just go up and talk to them, and that they'll be happy to talk to me, how different would that be than what it might be? Uh, if you didn't have that good enough conditioning. So what we know is that we can use meditation to investigate uh, how we hold these experiences uh, and that if they're not in the secure range, we can use meditation practices to shift into those views. Is that making sense? So, um, what I thought we would do uh, tonight is um, a, a Vipassana meditation where we begin to examine uh, that. Um, uh, examining the content of thinking uh, and beginning to picture the experience of self and other uh, using a basic uh, Shinzen technique, see, hear, feel, and then dividing that into focus in and focus out. 
in focus in so internal auditory space internal visual space uh thinking space and the emotional content in the body we really have the 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 basic elements out of which we create the sense of self and the ex the external version the external sight space external sound space and the the felt sense of the body in the world is really uh, how we know the world once we do a little bit of that I'll, I'll i'll add to that an investigation of auditory thinking space uh, so we can begin to uh, also tie that into the content of thinking make sense so go ahead and take your meditation posture So any comments or questions about what we did this morning, this afternoon, this evening, <laughs> tomorrow? <laughs> Andrew? Uh, yeah, who knows what time it is anyway, right? <laughs> exactly. It's all a Time's construct. A, it's, it's a flat <laughs> circle. That's what they tell me. Um, yeah, I had two questions about the practice we did tonight. Um, the first one was with, with eyes closed, what would see out be? Um, yeah, I don't know what that would, what, what would actually be a see out with eyes closed? Sometimes when it's bright enough, uh, you get some residual light coming through the eyelids. Sometimes when you get sloth and torpor or something like that, you might open the eyes when you're practicing. But most of the time, you're quite right. The eyes are closed, so there's no see out. Okay. Um, and then my, my second question was, I don't remember exactly the prompt you gave, but there was something where you were talking about just sort of noticing the activations of the sense gates, not the content. Yeah. And um, my question is like, what is it when it's internal, what is activating the sense gates? Is it just the mind itself generating its own activity or, or what drives that? Which sense gate? Uh, for me, it is, was most commonly see in, and then sometimes it would go to hear in. And I would see like scenes or I would see people or, or kind of almost be like in a movie of an experience, but then either the visual or the auditory would be more emphasized. If we were to zoom out and hold the whole picture uh, and we could really do it well, we might be able to track where the, the, the cascade of activations started, but there all linked to each other and they all interact with each other so it could start anywhere and just then this cascade of activations that follows from it so um uh the example i've been using is from the retreat uh this winter i was looking i was sitting in meditation and then i started hearing a tapping <laughs> loose calm down <laughs> Uh, which I identified to be a woodpecker, which caused a visual image of a woodpecker, but it was a woodpecker that I, I uh, used to see quite a bit when I was a child. And so the view in my internal visual thinking from hearing the sound 
was of the backyard in the, the 1960s. But then I was curious about it, so I, I opened my eyes and then I saw the woodpecker associated with the sound. But then I also recognized that the woodpecker didn't match the image in my internal visual thinking. And then my mind started to spin to see if I could figure out which woodpecker it was. So all of those interactions, and then there's of course the emotional response to both the experience of the woodpecker in the present moment and the woodpecker that's associated with the memory. And they're all just pinging off each other. So the source of that could be anywhere. Okay, great, thank you. Claire? Uh, yeah, a few questions. The, the feeling, is it always uh, for us when it's associated with emotions? Or what if you're feeling like your stomach is full? That's interior feeling, That's but is that like external? Out. out, okay. So only for emotions will you categorize it as feeling? Right. Okay. Um, and then for repeat or one-off thoughts, um, if it's something in response to a current stimul stimulus, but it's happened again. So the second time around, it would be a repeat? Repeating thoughts tend to be about the past or the future. Okay, past or future. Okay. And they tend to be repetitive. I see. Okay. Now, so like, even the cycle though say, of the ambulance comes twice. So, um, um, depending on the cycle of the repeat. But what I mean by repetitive really is that you think them over and over again. So in the description of the thoughts that you have, were they actually in reaction to the experience of the present moment happening? Or is yeah. it a thought loop that you engage in frequently over the course of your life? Uh, no, it's, it's just sort of the same uh, Let's say there, there's a noise in a park, the same noise. And every time the noise happens, I'm like, that's annoying. <laughs> so, right, that would not that be repeated. Oh, that's not okay. As long as there is a present stimulus, we don't count right. it as repeat. As long as okay. you're reacting to the present moment, I then see. that's the one off thought. It's only when all of a sudden, for instance, I, 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 um, I worry about my dog. I don't know. This has never happened to me before. Um, that I looked down and she looked still and my mind thought, is she breathing? And then my mind uh, became anxious about that. And then I went into a repetitive thought that I used to regulate anxiety, which I recognized right away. I see. So the okay. thought that she's awake now, so she's moving. So I don't have that anxiety. But when I, I had to look at her and she was very still and I, and I noticed the mind went immediately into anxiety which is, and then to regulate the fear response, my mind went into a, a, a repetitive thought that I recognize. The thing about the repetitive thoughts is once you begin to examine them, you'll be able to recognize them because you use them so frequently. And then you okay. can give them cute names. <laughs> I see, okay, so they're really quite repetitive. It's, right. It's really, so, okay. Um, and then the last question is in between the see here feel do you 
go back to your breath or you just stay with the last? No, you just follow where it goes. There's no anchoring in the, that technique. Okay. Good. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate your practice. Um, we have a few things coming up this Sunday. We have the last, the third of the day longs in the level one. Um, and then uh, two weeks from then we have the I love you keep going day long, which is about collaborative relationship uh, uh, strategies. Um, April, I think it's actually April 23rd. We're starting a new level two class. So take a look at that. Uh, April, I think in the middle of April, we have a virtual retreat, an eight day virtual retreat. It's up on the website. Take a look at that. Um, we're going to do a series of day longs um, for Central European time in the spring, but that means that they'll be uh, <laughs> up really early or all night if you're if you're an all night person. Uh, but then we're also going to start a level two for uh, Central European time. But that also means that it'll be in the morning here. So some people prefer that rather than the afternoon. So that's going to be available. Um, and then we have a winter retreat, a fall retreat, which is October 1st, October 8th. Those are the things that are coming up. Take a look at it. Um, I offered this class on a Donna basis. Donna is the Pali word for generosity. Uh, uh, which means that I offer the teaching freely, um, but I, I do hope that you'll make a donation. There's a link to make a donation on the website. Any amount is appreciated and it helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. And I do hope to see you again on the path somewhere soon. Uh, enjoy your evening. Uh, see you later. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.